join me in prayer over this Word of God? Living Word of God, we do listen and hear your words. Holy Spirit, we are acutely aware of your presence here with us. Open our eyes that we may see truth, our ears that we may hear the truth, our hearts that we may apply the truth. Lord Jesus, speak. We need you and you only. Amen. So we're uh, in kickoff Sunday, hence kicking off a new sermon series about bearing the marks, wearing the marks, and what exactly do we mean by that? Um, I think of Paul in, in Galatians, in the sixth chapter of Galatians, he tells the Galatian church, tell everyone not to cause me any trouble because I bear the marks of Christ upon me. And I was thinking about that and how it entered into this book of Philippians and especially in this first chapter and what we might begin to learn about what does it mean for us to have marks. So I thought about these certain ones. Um, Steve, if you want to pull those up for me. So, you know, we identify, um, yeah, we see that, right? There, there's a marking. We see that and we realize um, not only does that mean the town of Glenville police, but there's a couple other things that that might mean. It might mean uh, authority, right? That we recognize that we're speaking with someone who has authority represented by their badge, their mark. Um, we normally also know that uh, that person wearing that badge may also uh, uh, communicate to us we're, we're in trouble. Um, maybe we had a little bit of a lead foot. And uh, we went we went down uh, Glen Ridge Road a little quickly past uh, where they are, and and we've been pulled over, and we see that badge, and we have that sick feeling in our stomach of, oh, I've I've messed up. So we see that mark, and it, it provokes feelings in us, and it provokes for me, it provokes a response of fear, uh, and trembling and cold sweat. Um, so so another one might be this one. Um, we see uh, that mark. And we realize that those marks are still on his hand, that there's still a scar. And those marks mean something to us, do they not? We recognize them. We recognize that that was the payment for my sin. We recognize that as the arm of, uh, not that particular one, but it brings to thought the arm of our Redeemer our God, and, and all that he has accomplished for us. And we realize that we are recognizable by that mark. So we come into this Philippian letter, this letter of joy that Paul writes to the Philippian church as he explains to them not only what are the marks of the church, but what are the marks that a Christian has and how do we work out living those marks within community? And so that's the journey that we're going to be on uh, for the next several weeks of what does it mean for us to bear the marks? What does it mean for us to live with marks upon our lives? I've always uh, been struck in Matthew 16 where Jesus tells Peter, it is upon this rock that I will build my church. Why does that strike me so deeply? Because it is um, 
the authority of heaven, the word of God, establishing a community of people that belong to him. And I'm in wonderment of that, that the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, would come incarnate himself into flesh and then say, in my redemption of you, I'm not just bringing you up to level ground, but I'm going to establish you as a people. And I'm going to establish you not just another tribe of people on the earth, but I'm going to establish you as a sanctified people that are mine and dear to my heart. And this comes as no surprise because it is what he did in the Old Testament with Israel. As he said, you will be a people, a tribe of people that are dear to me. And so it's the continuation of that which began in the Old Testament of Jesus saying, you're still my people. You're still a people that are dear to me, that are established by me. Well, what's so provoking about that? What should provoke us about that is then there means that there's a uniqueness to the, who we are in the way that we live life. That we not only are people of the earth, but we are citizens of heaven. That you and I are not just Americans, but we have a priority of being members of the kingdom of heaven. That you and I are not just by our lineage identified by our last name here on earth, but by eternity we are identified by the name of Christ as we call ourselves Christian. And because we call ourselves Christian, we are bold enough to take the risk of taking that name in vain by not living truly in the marks of Christ, but ignoring the marks of Christ and living in the marks of our own fig leaves. And so as we meditate upon these words, as we look at these words in Philippians, as we see the environment and the, and the joy of that community, we need to recognize what marked them so. Because after all, this is Paul's most joyful letter. When we look at the greeting here, and that's all we're going to focus on this morning is these first two verses. But when we look at that greeting this morning, we see Paul not saying or having to defend that he's apostle. He's an apostle of Jesus. He doesn't need to do that with the Philippian church. There's no trouble being given to him by the Philippian church. There's only a recognition of Paul's ministry to them and the joy that that he has brought them, recognizing the salvation of Jesus Christ to them and identifying them as a community. And so Paul gladly says, it's me, Paul, and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. It begs us here just for a moment to begin to think internally, what is it that marks me as belonging to Jesus? If, if I'm out in my workplace, if I'm out in the grocery store, if I'm, if I'm driving down the road in my car, if I'm in my house with my spouse and my children, if I'm at the old folks' home, or if I'm in, my, if I'm in the nursery, no matter where I am, what marks me as being a belonger to Jesus? Anything? Does anything readily come to mind that people would look at and immediately know, hey, there's, there's a follower of Jesus? 
I recognize it right off the bat. It's a good question for us to begin to ask. People driving by on the road out on 50, when they drive by East Glenville Church, they see the word church and there's a vague or a nebulous understanding that could be a church that belongs to Jesus. But if they were to walk in the door, what would they see? Would they know that this is a church that follows Jesus unconditionally and unashamed? Would they see an energy and a joy that is so different from the rest of the world that they would light up when they came in or be so frightened they might run? Might they see something so powerful and mysterious happening here? Might they see such an expression of joy that they couldn't believe that it's real and it might scare them? Or would they see such a a beloved enthrallment of people for their Lord and for one another that they might be so attracted that they find out, I found what I finally need in life, a relationship with God and His people. Those are the things that we must pursue, not only individually, but also as a church body. Certainly at different levels we are pursuing that, and that's a good thing. And we, we should have commendations for those things. But we should also begin to encourage one another all the more and the more and the more to continue on bearing these marks, not only to the world, but also to one another. So what do we see in this greeting here of Paul? Well, I want to talk about just the very first thing that I I see right off the bat is a mark of discipleship. That a healthy church has discipleship. Where do I see that? Look at the first verse. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Those of you who don't know, there is an incredible godly relationship based on discipleship and mentorship between Paul and Timothy. They were two brothers that dearly loved one another and enjoyed ministering in the name of Christ as servants for the body of Christ. As we read in the book of Acts and we read through several other uh, books of the Bible, we see this relationship with Paul and Timothy where Paul is continually pouring his life into Timothy. He's giving Timothy advice on many subjects in the church, on leadership, on how to deal with conflict, on how to provide worship. And so we see this, this, this wonderful relationship of a mature Christian pouring in to also another mature Christian. Oftentimes we think of discipleship as being something that I don't have any gifts for because that person is so much better than I am. They're so much smarter than I am. Nothing could be further from reality. Every single one of us need to be encouraged with the things of Jesus. We should be as a body of Christ continually discipling one another in the glory and the grace and the mercy of Christ. We should be praying for one another. We should be reading scriptures to one another. We should be helping each other apply those scriptures in our life. Checking on one another throughout the week. When we see a brother or a sister out in the yard with a rake, we go take the rake from them and help them rake. Nothing could be more discipling than helping in labor. I look outside and I see the bounce house going up. 
I saw people trimming bushes. I saw John out there with a skimmer getting the algae out of the pond and then pouring fish in it. Um, I don't know if that's for lunch later or, or what. But bless his heart, he's out there on his hands and his knees in his suit skimming out algae out of our pond. That disciples me. And it takes it to the root of the word for me. It disciplines me. Not in a bad way, not in a mean way, not in a cruel way, but it disciplines me to know that I too need to reach out and do the manual things, the hard things, the mundane things of this church body. See, see, John this morning discipled me without ever knowing that he was discipling me. Because he was bearing the marks of Christ in that cruddy pond this morning with algae all in it. We must disciple one another all of the time. You know why? Because we're always watching. If we're watching someone who's doing nothing, we take note. There's nothing being done. Guess what? I don't need to do anything. Versus, look, there's someone praying. It convicts me to pray more. Oh, look, there's someone complaining. It disciples me to complain more. Versus, oh, look, there's someone blessing someone else. That disciples me to bless people with my own life. People are watching all of the time. They're listening all of the time. We're watching and listening creatures, especially within the church, to see what one another are doing and how we're behaving. That's called discipleship. It's not just teaching people to read Scripture, but it's also teaching people to live out the Scripture in their relationships and with their tongues. A healthy church is a discipling church. Well, not only is a healthy church a discipling church, but a healthy church is a church of servants. Paul says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. It's an intentional word uh, that Paul uses here. The word in the Greek is doulos. It actually means slave. But Paul is saying that Timothy and I are coming to you as a church as slaves. We're coming as slaves of whom? Jesus Christ. You see, the mark that they bear is the mark of slavery. They don't come in their own freedom. They don't come in their own name, but they come with an identifier that tells the company that's receiving the letter, that's receiving the message, let me tell you exactly who it is that's addressing you. It's me, Paul. And it's Timothy, the slaves of Jesus. Paul calls himself a slave of Christ. In the day of Paul, it was more clearly understood what Paul meant when he said a slave of Christ. Because a slave is owned by his master. He is completely consumed with his master. He is consumed with his master's needs, not his own. 
He's consumed with his master's agenda, not his own. He is consumed with his master's message, not his own. He is consumed with his master's business, not his own. He is consumed with his master's kingdom, not his own. And doesn't that identify Paul? Don't we know the Apostle Paul by the mark that he bears? When he told the Galatian church, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Certainly what he's telling us is, I've been whipped, I've been beaten, I've been in prison. But more than that, he's telling us, I am totally sold out for the agenda of Christ and the advancement of the gospel on this earth. What identifies this church? When people come in, are we identified as a group of servants? What identifies us to the world? Are you identified by the idea, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ? When you go into your boss's office, are you identified as a slave of Jesus Christ? When you speak with your neighbor next door, are you and I identified as slaves of Jesus Christ? When we speak of the things of Christ, are we identified as slaves of Jesus Christ? Are you and I represented by those who are totally sold out to the agenda of the king? Or is our own agenda more important to us? Slaves exist for their master. They have no other reason for their existence. Paul assumed no personal rights of his own. He served his master. He was at his master's disposal every hour of the day. So that with Paul he lived only to serve Christ hour by hour and day by day. You see, Paul even saw what? His, his job was what? He was a tent maker. And what was the purpose of his tent making? Was it for Paul's enrichment and his englorement that men might recognize him and give him trophies and accolades or a free lunch or a gold watch at the end of 20 years of tent making? Absolutely not. Paul's purpose in tent making was so that Paul could do the ministry. As a slave of Jesus Christ, he utilized everything in his life, every circumstance in his life, every issue in his life to do one thing and one thing only to present himself and his circumstances in slavery to Jesus. What identifies your life? What is the mark of my life? What is the mark of the church here at East Glenville? Are we discipling? Are we considering ourselves slaves to Jesus? It's a horrible word in a human context, but it's the most freeing and wonderful word in the eternal context. We should make no mistake about this. This is not a church building seminar. This isn't a phrase that just makes people come in to the modern day church. But it is the truth. Jesus demands and commands no less than that. 
Jesus calls you and I to a commitment unto himself that is no less than enslavement to everything that he is. I would encourage you to read the Gospels again, especially the Gospel of Luke, and see the places where Jesus said hard things. Let the dead bury their own dead. If you turn from the plow, you're not fit for the kingdom. Over and over, Jesus tells of the ultimate requirement that he commands of his people. The rich young ruler, go, sell everything that you have and come and follow me and you will have eternal life. A healthy church disciples and a healthy church sees itself as slaves to Christ and Christ alone and thereby slaves to one another, servants to one another. There's another reason that Paul introduces himself as a slave of Christ. He meant it to have the most high honor and kingly profession to all the world. We look at the men of God of history who've always been called slaves of God, servants of God. It's the highest title and offer that believers can really give to another believer. Moses was considered a slave of God in Deuteronomy and in the Psalms. Joshua was a slave of God. David, a slave of God in 2 Samuel and the Psalms. Paul was a slave in Jesus Christ and Romans and Philippians and Titus. James was a slave in James 1.1. Jude was a slave in Jude 1. The prophets were considered to be slaves of God. Christian believers are said to be slaves of Jesus Christ. The great need today is for men and women within this culture to be considered slaves of Jesus Christ. It is to be the mark which identifies the men and the women of God and then collectively the church of Christ. Not only do we disciple Not only are we servants, but we're also saints. A healthy church recognizes the mark of sainthood. As Paul addresses this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Sainthood was not held for a special group of believers that somehow had done something special above all other recognizable things that believers did. There's no, there's no mention of that in the Bible anywhere at all. The only thing that is taught about sainthood, about believers, is that all believers are considered saints. The reason is this, because of the mistake that we use the word saint for in our modern culture. We hear the word saint, we think of Christians on prednisone. Christians on steroids, somehow they they read more, they they think more, they've done more miracles, they've led more people to Jesus, they walk on water with one foot, they, they, they do all sorts of things that are just out of the ordinary and extraordinary people, and those are the saints. But the Bible has a much different context and meaning of the word saint there, the word is hagios, it means holy, set apart. That you are a set apart people for a specific purpose. 
That when you gave your heart to Jesus, Jesus set you apart from the rest of all of creation as a holy one bearing his righteousness and called out of the earth and the people of the earth for his purposes. You're more than East Glenvillians or Scotianites or, or Boston Spa Nights. Or wherever you're from, you're more than that. You're more than Northeasterners. I'm more than some dumb hay bell from Florida. We, you and I, are the people upon which Jesus has placed the mark of his righteousness to be ambassadors to the rest of all of creation, of those who bear his image upon their hearts. You and I have a special commission above all other commissions on the earth. And it's the commission of giving his kingdom priority and the expansion thereof in every single area of our lives, in every circumstance. You are not an identified, you are not identified by your sin, you're not identified by your failures, you're not identified, thank God, by our weight. We're not identified by our looks. We're not identified, thank God again, for our bank accounts. We are identified by the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus and his thumbprint upon us. What is glorious and wonderful and most freeing for those who are enslaved is that we realize we are completely free in Jesus from all other encumbrances that would seek to slave us, enslave us to death. You and I have been freed from futility. We've been freed from futile thinking. We've been freed from frustrations. We've been freed from sin and the punishment thereof. We have been freed from our fig leaves that bind us and hold us and bound us up so tight. And we have been given the robe and the righteousness of Jesus to walk through this life with until the day he brings us into glory. And we approach the throne of grace boldly to hear, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of the Father's kingdom. We forget that part of that verse often. We stop with, well done, good and faithful servant. Now what? Go get your lazy boy. Get a harp, find a cloud, pluck away. Nothing is further from the truth of the Scripture. Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Father, which is this. It is His pleasure to hand the kingdom over to you. That you and I are the co-heirs, the joint heirs with Jesus over his kingdom. And thereby we are his holy ones, his saints. We understand that. We know the moniker that is around our neck to the rest of the world that I belong to Jesus because he has set me apart to belong to him. Dare say... If someone we knew of importance on this earth 
walked into this building and said, would someone get me a glass of water? Many of us would fall over each other trying to get that glass of water for that celebrity, that man or woman. I think of the lines of people wanting autographs from a professional athlete or from a movie star. Nothing wrong with that. That's not what I'm saying. But I think of how ambivalent we are sometimes when the king of the universe calls us, serve me. We don't realize we have so much more significance, so much more weight in the world than those who are not slaves of the king. You see, a healthy church is marked by that and understanding its sanctification. You may not understand the word sanctification. It's just another way of saying that you have been set apart. There's two levels of this sanctification, two ways to understand what's going on in your life and what has happened to your life. If you are a follower of Christ, you have been definitely sanctified. Sometimes in my Sunday school class, when I'm teaching a class on sanctification, I'll ask this question, who is more sanctified, the thief on the cross or the Apostle Paul? The, the truth of the matter is both. The thief on the cross was as sanctified as the thief on the cross needed to be to be in paradise that day with Jesus. You see, there's an immediate setting apart. There's an immediate identifying mark on us. The moment that we are in relationship with Jesus, we are marked forever and for always as His. And no one or nothing can ever take us out of His hand. There's no circumstance. There's no disease. There's no hope. There's no person. There's no authority. There's no boss. There's nothing in heaven that will ever snatch us out of the hand of Jesus. Even you can't snatch yourself out of His hand. There's no random atom out there that's stronger or more powerful than the hand of Christ. And if his hand is upon you, and if his hand holds you, there's nothing that can pry you loose. You are definitively sanctified as his, and finally so. But the second part of that sanctification is this, progressive sanctification. Where you and I are given the grace to live another day. And as we live another day, what happens to us? We receive the marks of this life upon us by faith in the Christ and in the Holy Spirit that those marks transform us to look more like Jesus. You remember Romans 8, right? He has called us, predestined us, justified us to do what? To be conformed. To the image of whom? His Son. And so that we realize that everything in life as a saint of God is conforming us to look like Jesus. And that would be progressive sanctification. We already look enough like Him to be with Him forever. But by His grace, if He gives you another day to live, your mission in this life is to bear your circumstances and your marks and enter into this world of darkness with the kingdom of light and bear the marks of sanctification that cause you to look more like Jesus.
Husbands, in your home, are you looking more like Him? Wives, are you looking more like Jesus in the way that you serve your home? Children, are you looking like Christ as you honor your father and your mother? Grandparents, are your grandchildren seeing people who bear the marks of faithfulness to Christ throughout their life? Are you sharing the story with them? Are you discipling them? Are you teaching them the freedom of being a slave of Jesus? Are you showing the joy of being one who's set apart of all eternity? Are you spending your time teaching them all that's wrong? That's going to take up most of your calendar. Or are you teaching them that Jesus is coming to make it all right? And that will consume your calendar. So not only is a healthy church discipling, serving, filled with saints, but one last thing, a healthy church is organized for doing the ministry. It has leaders. Leaders who are uniquely equipped and gifted to lead the people of God. Without leadership in the church, there is chaos. Without leadership in the church, there is not vision. Without leadership in the church, there is not direction. Without leadership in the church, there is not sound doctrinal teaching. Without leadership in the church, there is not the representation of the authority of heaven within the church. Without leadership in the church, the church is nothing more than a club. Without leadership, it is the book of Judges where every man and woman does what's right in their own eyes. That is a recipe for unhealthiness. It is a recipe that's anti-biblical in the way that the Bible instructs that the church is to be set up. It is not that there are men and women in leadership that have special qualities that are above and beyond anyone else. But it is a calling and as a hand put on the shoulder of men and women within God's church to rise up into leadership. No one's more sanctified or less sanctified. No one's more special to Christ or less special to Christ. But there are people who Christ has uniquely put his hand on and says, I call on you to be leading. Now that that's sunk in for just a moment, hear this. Every follower of Christ is called to lead. At one level or another, every single one of us are to be pace setters and pursuing the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. 
Paul says, I tell you, saints of God, with the overseers and deacons, not to elevate overseers and deacons above all others who are sanctified, but to point out a special and unique niche that they fill within the body of Christ. But it's with them so that you and I can understand that each of us have the role of leading someone somewhere to Christ. Each of us have been uniquely gifted with talents to apply them for the kingdom of Christ. Not one of us in this room who confess Jesus as our Lord and our Savior can say, no, not me. You are especially uniquely commissioned by Jesus to be a leader. We did a ceremony of commissioning the women this morning, but understand this, every single believer has already been commissioned with go, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Every believer is commissioned to be an ambassador of the kingdom. It isn't that the church doesn't have qualified leaders. It's that it's got too many followers. What do I mean? We have too many followers of self. Too many followers of this is my idea. No, that's your idea. No, this is my idea. No, you've got to do it this way. No, you better do it that way. You've got to do it this way because this is what's right because I thought of it and I'm the one who thinks of everything right. I have the corner on that, you know, what's right. As the fourth person of the Trinity, you should understand that. But if we're all understanding that our leadership is a commission from Jesus, we would be bumping and running into one another with amazing grace and mercy to see who could outserve the other. We would be leading the world straight through the gates of paradise. We would be leading East Glenville community into glory. Not so that we might be thought of as a glorious church, but that the community may know that there's a glorious Lord. Not that we might have budgets that are completely and 100% filled but that people may know that true manna comes from heaven. Not that we might fight every battle in our own name and think that somehow we're victorious, but we would show people the victorious king who's overcome death. It's not that we want people to come in and think that we're special, It's that we want the community to know that our Lord is the most special. Our agenda of service, our agenda of leadership, our agenda of discipleship must be for one thing and one thing only, and that's Christ. It is not a man in a pulpit or a leadership around a table or those who serve on a council or the person that's mowing the lawn or any kind of 
denominational definition, but our definition and our mark as a body of believers is Jesus Christ and Him alone. And He must consume us so that we may bear the marks of being His. The book of Revelation teaches us that there's going to come a day for every follower of Christ. And I don't know how it's going to all play out. I just know this is supposed to happen. But each one of us will have a special name on a white stone. It's a name that only you and Jesus will know. It's his pet name for you. I have an idea what mine's going to be. But I picture this walking down a road one day on the renewed earth with Jesus. And he bends over and he whispers in my ear, this is my name for you, son. This is my name for you, daughter. This is how I've always thought of you. Since before time began, this was the name I had in my heart that would be your name for me. You see, you're already marked with that name. He already knows the pet name for you. It is the identifier of who you are before the throne of God. The challenge is for us to begin to live those marks out now in anticipation of knowing what it's going to be like then. Life scars us. It beats us up. It's hard. And we're going to meet Christ one day and say, Jesus, look what they did. Look what life did to me. And I believe at that point Jesus will stretch out his arms and show us his side and say, right, now you look just like me. Let's pray.